is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And it's a great day to look at a great, significant, and per perhaps fateful election that is coming our way in uh, just about a little more than 50 days from now. It's less than two months. Yeah, in November, we decide who controls the House of Representatives, who controls crucial governorships, who controls the U.S. Senate. And uh, all of that is being upstaged right now by a debate that I, I thought we would never actually have, which is about the appropriateness of a program in Florida and a program in Texas and uh, apparently spreading uh, to elsewhere to move asylum seekers who are trying to get into the United States and working with the federal government to try to get permission to enter. Not all of them will, by the way, but uh, taking those asylum seekers by airplane in some cases at the cost of $615,000 for the taxpayers of Florida to take a bunch of Texas immigrants to uh, to Martha's Vineyard. Okay, uh, this is all political theater. How is it playing with Latino Americans who Republicans have recently been trumpeting are making a big migration to the Republican Party? There really is no one better in the country to talk about these issues with than Ruben Navarrete. He is the, uh, he's an SOC, son of a cop. He is a best-selling author and a syndicated columnist and podcaster. His uh, Ruben in the Center podcast, uh, exciting and substantive. And by the way, thank you the other day for giving a hat tip to me and to this show, Ruben. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. My friend, uh, a great pleasure to be with you. As always, uh, your friendship over the years has been one of the great blessings of my life. Always glad to be with you to talk about this issue uh, today, the busing of migrants uh, from Texas and uh, to, to points north, it appears. Yeah, it's not the, the busing that gets to me as much as the flying, because yeah. have you ever, I, I have only once in my life flown on a private plane as means of transportation. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> again, the two chartered planes that brought 48 Venezuelan asylum seekers uh, yep. to Martha's Vineyard. Yep. They had no idea where they were going. They were tricked into getting yep. on the planes. They were coming from Texas uh, to Massachusetts at the expense of Florida and Governor DeSantis, who yeah. says he was personally right. responsible. Was this a brilliant move? It's the craziest story I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a real crazy story because, as you said, Here's here's the backstory. Here's how you have to look at it. Governor DeSantis, as we know, is is running for president. He really wants to be the GOP nominee for president. But so is Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott, who's the governor of Texas, also wants to be in the mix. If not the actual candidate, he would love to play kingmaker. Uh, and so Abbott has one distinction over DeSantis. Abbott is actual border governor. See, Texas is a border state, but Florida isn't. And so for months, uh, Ron DeSantis has secretly envied Greg Abbott because Greg Abbott can portray himself as tough on immigration through all the stunts he pulls on the border. And so what DeSantis decided to do was in a very aggressive way lay claim to this border issue, even though he lives in Florida. 
And he did that by basically sending people who speak Spanish, Latinos, from Florida to San Antonio into a shelter where those people who had been here had come legally. They'd been processed. They were given asylum dates to appear before a judge. And they're put by the federal government in the custody of this shelter. And they came there and say, hey, we have jobs for you. How would you like to go to Boston? And guess what? They all said, sure, because they, they came here to work. They didn't come here for welfare. So they get on these private planes, as you said, and they're not flown to Boston. They're flown to Martha's Vineyard. It's the craziest story in the world because DeSantis used, I think, $12 million that had been appropriated by Floridians to transport migrants out of Florida, not, not to transport them out of Texas. So, so now uh, Governor DeSantis is being accused of everything from kidnapping to trafficking undocumented immigrants to uh, to misappropriation of state funds, you name it. So uh, the, the funny thing is, I guess Greg Abbott and, uh, and uh, Ron DeSantis had wanted to get public attention. Well, they sure got it. The public is focused now. Okay. Um, what should have happened in the normal course of affairs? Again, yeah. my heart goes out to Venezuelan people. I had a Venezuelan roommate in college. Yeah. And uh, Venezuela was once doing very well. It was a democracy. It has been totally ruined by Hugo Chavez and uh, Maduro. And and these are people who are just desperate to get out. There's 6.8, I just looked it up, 6.8 million uh, refugees from Venezuela who, who have gone somewhere else. Now, yeah. here they are. They had the bad fortune to uh, sort of arrive in Florida. I'm not sure how they got there. What normally would have happened with these people? Right. In this particular case, Michael, these people say they've never been to Florida. They're Venezuelans, even though there is a big Venezuelan population in Florida. These Venezuelans got to Texas, right? And they found themselves in San Antonio. And that's that's been the interesting part of the story is that people were trying to figure out in the media, how is it that the DeSantis and his office are claiming credit for shipping these people from Texas. And the answer is, as you said, they paid for the flights, right? Yeah. So, uh, if, you're, if you're not a border governor, you have to send out for, for immigrants, and that's what he did. He ordered take out DoorDash. And they brought these people from Texas, uh, shipped them to, to the Northeast, uh, to, to Martha's Vineyard. Here's what should have happened. People come here, and they have a right to come here legally, to come here as they have, to turn themselves in, to be fingerprinted, to apply for asylum, and to get a court date. All of that happened. What should happen at that point, Michael, politicians need to keep their stinking hands off these people. Okay? It's bad enough they have to deal with lawyers when they get here. They shouldn't be subjected to the whims of politicians who are running for president. Ron DeSantis needs to keep his hands off of these Venezuelans and leave them in San Antonio where they belong. He had no business taking them out of there for a political stunt. It is disgraceful that a governor used women and children who are refugees, who come here with nothing, and he turned them into a political prop. He sent them to Martha's Vineyard. Now they have a court date to go back to Texas. How are they supposed to get from Martha's Vineyard to Texas? If they don't show up for their court date, they're going to be ruled ineligible for, for, for asylum, right? We talk often on this show, whenever I'm your guest, we talk about the terrible, shameful history of the United States turning away Jewish refugees during World War II. To our great shame, we're never going to live that down. Imagine if this had been done then where you actually are using women and children who have nothing, and your way of honoring them is to turn them into a prop and to co-opt them, basically, because Ron DeSantis, who went to Yale and Harvard Law School, really wants to be president. That's why they did this. It's disgraceful. 
I, it, it it is disgraceful. And by the way, there's a new Ken Burns documentary yes. about the yes. the inability of of uh, people to do what my grandfather did, which was to leave Germany uh, in yes. 1934 with my mother. So yes, we have we have some skin in this game, but we all do. And what what amazes me here is conservatives of all people. Uh, yes. Look at that horror of at Hugo Chavez. And by the way, there are also some of these immigrants that they dumped on Kamala Harris's front lawn in Washington D.C. were from Nicaragua, which is in terrible shape. And uh, with a uh, basically the old Sandinista Danny Ortega taking over the whole country. Don't conservatives support? People who are trying to secure their own future and the future of their kids, and to do that by getting asylum status here in the United States, not by cheating or stealing or breaking our laws, but by following our laws, which is what they were trying to do. Uh, we'll be right back with Rufa Navarrete and then talk about the future of the Republican Party, the Latino vote and uh, his observations about uh, what the election of 2022 will mean and should mean. I'll be right back with the one and only Ruben Navarrete. By my good friend, uh, Ruben Navarrete, uh, who um, uh, is one of the leading voices as a syndicated columnist in the country and also a podcaster and a best-selling author. And, and Ruben, uh, this entire fascination with these political stunts of uh, dropping off uh, immigrants, asylum seekers on the front lawn of the Naval Observatory, which is the vice presidential residence where Kamala Harris lives, and dropping them off in Martha's Vineyard, all of that is occurring at a time when we're in the midst of a desperately important election where... It is very possible that many, many states, including Georgia, by the way, certainly including Nevada and Arizona, Latino votes are going to be decisive. And the evidence had been that uh, Latinos were moving at last in the direction of the Republican right. Party. How is right. this uh, immigration uh, stuntsmanship uh, going to impact that drive to win conservative support from Latino voters. It's terrible. Happy day for the Democrats. Happy day for Kamala Harris and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, who have never done right by Latinos and now can continue to not do right by Latinos because this this gift has fallen into their lap. Uh, but every time Michael Medved and, and other and, and other Trumpers and and other people build bridges from the Republican Party to the Latino community, uh, along comes someone like Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott, and they blow up the bridges. And uh, there's this tug of war going on between the, in the GOP right now between people who look at demographic changes, see that Latinos represent one in five Americans. They'll be one in four Americans before long and within 20 years. It's a built-in conservative group of people who are conservative in so many different ways. Uh, Ronald Reagan got 40% of the Latino vote in 84. 20 years later in 2004, uh, George W. Bush blew up the place with 44%. And yet you have these little insignificant governors who, unlike Reagan, all Reagan did was win 49 states, <laughs> only 49 states. And you have these little insignificant governors who, who won one state, Florida or Texas, and they think that they know best. And they think that the way to 
win elections is to alienate this group of conservative voters. That's just awesome. So there is a tug of war going on, and right-minded Republicans are fighting for the soul of their party, and they're saying, are you idiots? Why would you give away all these inroads and all these votes that are coming our way at this precise moment through Democrat neglect? Why give a gift to Schumer, Pelosi, Biden, and Harris? Well, there's the one example of that. Uh, I, I was listening to Fox and uh, to a discussion on one of the leading early yeah. evening programs there. And uh, one of the commentators was saying, oh, this is just priceless. It's juicy. We're watching all these yeah. rich uh, liberals and Martha's Vineyard adjusting to their new neighbors who are going to include uh, drug dealers and rapists. And this is for for refugees from Venezuela who have, yeah. have tried to follow all the rules and to register and to apply for asylum. What does that yeah. say about your assumptions about Latino people? It says that the same sort of, um, you know, racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia that's always plagued this country, where we always view immigrants as somehow inferior, refugees are inferior. Um, really what they, what refugees and immigrants lack is money. They, they were not they were not well cared for in their home countries. Their home countries failed them, and they came here. But they're not deficient in any other way. They're not morally deficient. They're not deficient in their values. They raise good kids. They do hard work. They were willing to get on a plane, sight unseen in, in San Antonio, and land in Boston for a job. At the same time that we have in the United States, all those Fox viewers are sitting home with the great resignation and the quiet quitting and a country that doesn't want to work anymore, help wanted signs everywhere. I mean... I might be the only one who sees the disconnect here. This is a time where we should bring, bring bringing in more refugees and immigrants and not fewer of them. So there is a really important tug of war going on. I, I am sympathetic to the idea that liberals who go to Martha's Vineyard and live up in Boston get to make policy and they don't have to deal with immigrants because they're down there on the border. Point taken. Thank you for making that point. Now knock it off. Okay? Because even though it was a point well made, now you're using kids, women and children as props. Okay, in terms of uh, what is going on right now in the campaign for control of the Senate, which is crucial, yes. Yes. the House has already adopted, uh, with uh, 47 Republicans voting for it, what is called the Respect for Marriage Bill, which does two things, basically. It says yeah. that uh, states in the future uh, will be compelled to uh, respect gay marriages. It also says that states in the future will be compelled to respect interracial marriages. And yeah. uh, at, right now it seems to me there's a move by Republicans to delay this vote, not to take yeah. the vote. But isn't this just allowing the Democrats to use... A, yeah. a yet another issue against Republicans that uh, that that because I, there are no serious Republicans now who are campaigning to right. undo gay marriage. There are no certainly no serious Republicans who are campaigning to undo interracial marriage. I mean, Clarence Thomas himself is in an interracial yeah. marriage. What's going on here? Yeah. So what's going on here is we're in an election year, and Paul, uh, the reason I uh, the reason Ruben got to the center and Ruben hates both local parties is because they're very similar. And Republicans and Democrats have in common that during election years, they only care about two things, money and votes. And so the GOP may well be inclined 
to vote yes on this bill you're describing, but they feel that they're going to be losing money and votes from their core religious base if they're seen as condoning same-sex marriage. It's a terrible hill to die on. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a brilliantly cynical bill that's been put before them because the very fact that anybody could oppose this, this, this ship has sailed. It's it sailed with our kids. You know, you can be a Republican in your 20s at the local Republican club at the local university, and you're not in favor of banning same-sex marriage. That, the issue has been resolved with younger Americans of all political parties. So this is, I think, uh, an example of the paralysis of the Republican Party. There are times when the Democratic Party should be speaking out against anti-Semitism from the squad, and it likewise is paralyzed. The two, the two parties have a lot in common. They get paralyzed during election years. And unfortunately, being paralyzed during election years means paralysis with the results of the election as well. Um, and what does your gut tell you about what the American people are going to want to say with their vote? I'm, in this election, I'm so glad you asked that, Michael. There is a, uh, a mistaken assumption out there. I think you hear it when you're listening to Ben Shapiro or our friend Hugh Hewitt or others. They're trying to say that people are not going to vote on abortion. Abortion is not going to be the vote, the vote getter. Well, fair enough. But they are going to vote on extremism. Extremism is on the ballot. And unfortunately, in many of these issues, the ones you just mentioned, abortion as well, and now the thing with the immigrants, man, uh, you know what? The Republican Party is lining up with extremism. And if extremism's on the ballot, it's going to lose. So I think we're going to get up, end up with a big surprise in November uh, with fewer takeaways from the, by the GOP than they thought. And they have themselves to blame. Well, I hope you're wrong on that because there are a lot of very worthy and fine Republican candidates. Uh, also very worthy and fine is Ruben Navarrete. You can uh, link to his material on this new podcast, Ruben in the Center, and more coming up on The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved Show, uh, we have a uh, piece that is coming out in, uh, it's actually it's out now. It's posted up at Newsweek, and uh, also it's uh, in our newsletter that goes out today. And uh, basically, it's a piece that uh, is answering the question that I just asked Ruben Navarrete and asked to a lot of people: What message are the American people trying to send? Will try to send with the election? And I do think that there will be a powerful vote for back to normal. And uh, this works for the Republicans, it seems to me, if they play it right. What do I mean by back to normal? The American people have voted very consistently over the last 70 years. Yeah, that's right. 70 years, all the way since 1952. Uh, the American people have voted for divided government. We do not want one-party control. That's one of the reasons that President Biden's speech was such an outrageous dud, the speech in front of Independence Hall, because he was talking about wiping out one whole political party. I know, I know. He said he just wanted to wipe out MAGA conservatives or MAGA Republicans. But the point is that there has never been a successful campaign in America premised on the idea that we're going to solve the nation's problem by wiping out the other party. American people want some kind of balance. They uh, want an interchange. They want the different parties to put checks and balances on one another because the whole fear of our constitutional founders 
was a a government that had too much concentration of power to one group or one individual and one of the uh, one of the things that I, I believe was so moving to people about uh, Her Majesty, may her memory be a blessing, uh, Elizabeth II, was the idea that she presided over a republic where, well, actually over a monarchy, not a republic technically, but she provided presided over a monarchy where people could squabble in parliament and shout at each other and yet actually come together to do the people's business. And uh, basically, the queen stood above it and encouraged the better angels of our nature. Uh, there's going to be a very, very big day on Monday with, um, with her funeral, expected to be one of the most viewed events in television history because people are fascinated, and I think rightly so, by the royal family as an institution and by these people as individuals. This is a um, report on the pileup along the Thames River of people just waiting because they want to pay last respects to Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, listen. This day was always going to be difficult and it's difficult for the nation, it's difficult for everyone around the world because I think everyone is feeling it um, and our thoughts are with, are with the family um, and obviously with everybody here today because it's special to be here. Okay, uh, it is special to be here. That was David Beckham uh, spoke to the media while he waited in a 12-hour line and spoke about the importance of the occasion. Uh, it is also significant that there are going to be leaders from all around the world. And when you talk about getting back to normal, the new normal that we've all become spoiled over has been the normal post 1989 when they tore down the Berlin Wall and since that time okay we have a disagreement with Russia we don't start talking about using nuclear weapons we don't start talking about China invading Taiwan it, it is a, a great advantage to the world when the nations of the world can talk to each other and sometimes come together and what we're going to see on Monday is a tremendous gathering of world leaders all there to honor the Queen and part of what they're honoring is uh, the idea of a, um, a world that can actually find ways to work together and uh, meanwhile speaking of finding ways to work together uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal reports today senators said they would put off a much-anticipated vote to codify same-sex marriage into law until after the midterm elections, with advocates hoping that their delay will give them a better chance to build the bipartisan support needed to pass. Look, they should pass this thing now because otherwise it's going to be another election issue that is going to be used by Democrats to to club the Republicans and just beat them up. Uh, because Ruben Navarrete was saying that 
the idea of gay marriage, it's not controversial anymore. It's an American reality. It's been an American reality now for seven years. And uh, the public opinion polls, uh, they say in the Wall Street Journal, expanded marriage rights have grown broadly popular. Gallup public opinion polls show interracial marriage is backed by more than nine in 10 Americans. Have you spoken to anyone who thinks that uh, there should be laws against interracial marriage, which is part of this respect for marriage law? And for same-sex marriage, it is supported by well over two-thirds of the country. There are some polls that show it's supported by three-fourths of the country. That, that is an indication of why, with having received 47 uh, votes for the Respect for Marriage Act in the House, it's already passed, putting it off in the Senate uh, is going to be a, a, a difficulty, not for the Democrats, but difficulty for the Republicans. Uh, Republicans need to focus on the issue of crime, which is a huge issue, and which Republicans ought to own because we are tougher on crime and more supportive of law enforcement. And it's one of the reasons that this entire reaction and overreaction to the Mar-a-Lago and the documents and Trump and the FBI search, for having people who say that they favor uh, abolition of the FBI, is that a tough-on-crime position to take? Or who say that uh, they oppose law enforcement? Law enforcement and the economy. The economy, of course, is the biggest concern, but law enforcement is close. This is where people live. And whatever the Republicans do that takes attention away from those issues, that gives the Democrats the, the chance to campaign as defenders of uh, same-sex marriage, uh, whatever the Republicans do to take attention away from the real issues that can actually work for the Republican Party, uh, that is a mistake. Uh, we um, uh, are, are going to be reviewing a, a bunch of strange films, one of them very artful and very strange, uh, one of them that actually tells a fairly bizarre and extraordinarily depressing true story. Uh, one of the things that I've been led to question, because I just saw a three-hour film critically acclaimed uh we're going to review it next week but it's one of those films where <laughs> why would anyone want to experience this level of depression uh what is the tremendous appeal of horrifying uh brutal uh extremely uh distasteful films uh that is a an ancient question we're going to be reviewing See How They Run, The Silent Twins, which is a real critical darling, and Confess Fletch with Don, uh, John Hamm. That and more coming up on The Medved Show.
And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, wishing you a, a wonderful weekend of uh, savoring the, the last 20 games or so of an amazing baseball season. And even if you're not a Mariners fan, though especially if you are a Mariners fan, this has been an amazing year of baseball. It's also a weekend to get perspective on some of the political disputes and some of the difficulties that we have in this country. And to remember just how fortunate we are uh, to be able to live here and to participate, even in all of the arguments. And maybe even, if you're so minded, to consider some of the new movies that are opening up around the country from Hollywood. It's hard to know uh, which of these films is going to actually connect most with the public. It probably would be See How They Run. And this is a film that is made for Agatha Christie fans and the success of the Hercule Poirot Murder on the Orient Express and the Death on the Nile. And uh, people are actually very engaged in and very enthusiastic about Agatha Christie. And there is actually an, an actress playing the real Agatha Christie in a film set in 1952, as this one is, uh, who turns up in this movie. Here's the setup. The setup uh, is that a, uh, she has written a play, Agatha Christie, and the play is The Mousetrap. Now, it ended up being, and I didn't know this before the movie, but... In reality, it's played consistently for 70 years on the stage, The Mousetrap, in the West End of London. So it's the most successful stage play in history, The playing for 70 years. And this takes place at the beginning of that run when there is a movie producer played by Adrian Brody, Oscar winner for The Pianist, who... Uh, is actually planning to make a movie version of See How They Run, but there are lots of people who want to stop him because then they would have to stop the stage version, at least according to the contract that set up the stage version originally. Uh, there's a murder, and the murder occurs very early in the film, but you have no idea who done it. And then there's an inspector from Scotland Yard and his assistant, very played by uh, the assistant Saoirse Ronan and uh, the inspector by Sam Rockwell, another Oscar winner. And they're all trying to see how that backstage murder occurred. Listen. A real-life detective. I understand that you came to blows the night in question. We have a serial killer on the loose. Please stand back. He keeps the key. Ah! Under the mat. We are no longer merely suspects. We are also potential victims. So what did he do that made you suspicious? It wasn't so much what he did, it was more the way he did it. How did he do it? Sort of suspiciously. Right. Okay, uh, the performances are fine and fun and a, a very, very capable crew of actors. Uh, so none of the characters are particularly believable or compelling. 
I mean, some of the humor in the in the film is the assistant trying to pretend that she doesn't notice that her senior inspector, who's supposed to be teaching her how to track down and solve a murder, uh, disappears all the time to booze it up. And uh, there is some fairly intense violence at the beginning. The actual murder, which is staged, is uh, enough to give this a PG-13. Unlike other Agatha Christie films, it's very difficult to follow the plot or the reasons that anyone would be involved or anyone would be doing it. And the surprise ending is, um, is strained and uh, not particularly satisfying. This is made particularly for Agatha Christie fans because there are all kinds of references to that are inside. For instance, this is all about a uh, a movie called The Mousetrap. Uh, the original title for that movie was Three Blind Mice. That's why they're calling this one See How They Run, right? Follow. Uh, the names of the characters are full of sort of insider references. For instance, there's Inspector Stoppard, which is a, relation, uh, a reference to the great playwright Tom Stoppard. All of it mildly entertaining, two stars, PG-13. It's playing in theaters, but, but hardly with the crisp edge or the bite of uh, um, the, the better whodunit murder mysteries, including the adaptations of Agatha Christie that are uh, available out there. The Silent Twins is a film about a remarkable t true story, and it's a true story about uh, twins June and Jennifer Gibbons, who grew up as the only black family in a small town in Wales in the 1970s and 80s, and they got intensive psychiatric treatment because these two twins, though they did not have any uh, visible physiological problems, didn't talk. They spoke to one another in their own language, but not to other people. And this led to hospitalization. It led to some nightmarish experiences, which are dramatically portrayed in this film. Listen. I think you might be a bad influence on each other. It might be an idea to split you up for a while. We will move the girls into special education. Are you going to say anything? We'll get them to talk, yes. Guilty or not guilty? You need to take care of yourself, yeah. Say something. Now. How do you plead? They shall be institutionalized indefinitely. It's brought a new awakening in me. It's like God gave me a chance. A chance to prove who I really am. Okay, one of the things that the film does is it shows their conversations with each other in a language that they have invented. Uh, and literally, they're the only people with whom either one communicates. There are, however, uh, some extremely graphic uh, sexual uh, encounters that uh, they have with some juvenile delinquent-style uh, uh, American boys who are living in this um, Welsh town. And that leads to crimes and serious crimes including arson and robbery and it leads to a terrible sentence and terrible suffering uh, the film is brilliantly acted the uh, the leading uh, the stars of the film are 
Tamara Lawrence and Letitia Wright, both of whom are rising young stars. And uh, it's directed, and it's very well directed, by Agnieszka Smoczynska. This is her English-language directing debut, so good for her. Uh, but while you can admire this film and admire some of the puppetry to il illustrate their their strange imaginations and their ambitions as writers, it, it is actually painful to watch it because it is well done enough to utterly disturb you. It's based upon an adaptation of a book by a Times of London uh, reporter who uh, interviewed as much as she could based on written answers because they wouldn't speak the silent twins uh... it's uh... very very much rated r for some violence and uh... a great deal of graphic sexuality and uh... it's playing in theaters uh... two and a half stars for the uh... spellbinding but very disturbing uh... the silent twins Confess Fletch is a comedy thriller. It's also a bit of a murder whodunit with John Hamm as a former investigative reporter who has suddenly found himself as a suspect in a murder. Listen. Hi, Frank. Where are you right now? None of your business. Come on, Fletch. Aren't you bored? I need you for a story. My father's paintings were stolen. The Picasso was appraised at $20 million. You're not a detective. But I was an investigative reporter. It's an occupation that's been cheapened by the digital age, like president. I think the victim interrupted an art theft. I looked into your criminal record. And? You're a bit of a shady character, Mr. Fletcher. But I am adorable. Okay, and if you find John Hamm adorable, you may enjoy this film. The only thing it has going for it is his star power. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden plays the sexy, aging mother of his girlfriend. Uh, the film makes no sense at all. <laughs> and, and again, other than the protagonist being kind of an interesting character who may make appearances in other films, not much going for it. Two stars. It's in theaters. It's rated R for a few graphic sex scenes. And we have much more to concern ourselves with. Uh, coming up in a new week, next time Monday, in This Greatest Nation on 